You're listening to the Teak Nation Podcast, where we strive to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from frauders and friends of TKE. Hello, Teak Nation Podcast listeners. My name is Alex Swinson. It is Tuesday. July 6th. Hope you all had a fantastic 4th of July weekend. Enjoyed some cookouts, maybe some pool time. I know I did. Got nice and bronze. We are going to jump right into our interview for this week. We have Andrew Hughes, who is back with us, fresh off of Mount Everest. We talked to Andrew back in April when he was actually at base camp on Mount Everest and uh, was uh, a very exciting, uh, enlightening conversation at that time, brought him back to talk about his journey, talk about what he learned, talk about uh, what it looked like to sit at the very top of the world, frankly. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy what he had to say and uh, all of the uh, the emotions he felt and, and just everything to go along with achieving something that uh, very few human beings have the opportunity to achieve. One of frankly, my favorite interviews we have done yet to date. So uh, with that, we will get into Andrew Hughes, member from the Chi chapter at the University of Washington and uh, recent climber of Mount Everest. For those who have not checked out the, uh, the first episode we did with Andrew two, three months ago, I'd encourage you to do so. But Andrew, it is good to see you in one piece looking uh, a little a little more pleasant and happier than the last time we talked to you, I would say. How, uh, you mentioned before we started recording, your body's finally recovered. And I know you, on May 23rd is when you reach the summit. How long does it actually take your body to bounce back from something like that? Yeah, I mean, the the, the mountain takes its pound of flesh. And in my case, it took about 23 pounds of it um, off me between the time that I started the expedition uh, and kind of the, the trek in, in in early April. Uh, so we got off the mountain on the 25th. But even when you get off the mountain, you're still at 17,500 feet. And uh, the way it worked for us is I dropped about 15 pounds on that summit push alone. So over about 12 days, I dropped 15 pounds from base camp to the summit and back again, uh, just because you're going at uh, such a high rate of um, kind of endurance at that altitude. And so it just kind of your, your body can't... Uh, get enough food into it you can't feed yourself enough food and so it starts cannibalizing all your muscles um uh which is just the only way you can get the energy to survive and get you to the summit and back down again but uh i, I would say that i i am i am back mentally and emotionally but physically it's still a long road um i couldn't really do a pull-up or a push-up when i got back to the gym a couple of days after getting back to seattle but it's it's all part of i think the the realizing that uh, what we build is always kind of impermanent when we're going for big goals um in the mountains and it's just part of the process um and you just got to have uh, humility and being gentle on yourself when things change um including your body and then just kind of get back to it for the next goal staying on that thought andrew you when you spoke to us last time you were describing how incredibly cold it was at, at the base of mount everest you're now back in seattle with record heat what has that done to your, your body to have the complete opposite extreme yeah it's a uh, it's been hard. Um, I mean, it's, it's welcomed in the sense that it's nice to thaw out a little bit, but uh, your body changes. They, they talk about kind of um, altitude sickness, but you also get a, a weird shift when you come back to lower sea level. Things kind of feel um, just kind of uh, constantly in flux. You, you've kind of 
been living in a state where your body is just kind of trying to survive. And so when you come back to, to sea level, there's just a lot of other things um, that kind of hit you. Um, stimulus, um, heat, uh, just the, the sense of nutrition, your, your, your pH actually in your body, your kind of the chemical make your body begins to alter slightly to deal with altitude. So um, sometimes your stomach can come like completely go off because your digestive system's altered to kind of work on digesting food at high altitude. So there's just all these other like reacclimation processes that go beyond simply, um, returning to sea level. Are there certain foods that you're eating intentionally right now? As you're um, <laughs> I'd like to say I was more intentional in what I'm eating, but it's just been <laughs> really whatever I can get. I mean, uh, you're, the thing is like you have major cravings coming off the mountain to begin with. Um, but you do see this crazy, just like uh, voracious appetite that comes in there because you're back and all of a sudden your body just wants to consume because as you go up, it's this weird um, trick your body plays on you as it kind of diverts energy to preserve the most important aspects of your organs and internal functioning systems. So despite the fact that when you climb the mountain, you should be eating more and consuming more energy, you shut down uh, a lot of that desire to eat, you, you lose your appetite. And so um, when you come back, your body realizes all of a sudden, here we go, floodgates are open, let's get after it. But I'm trying to be more intentional um, about what I eat than I did a couple of years ago when I came off the mountain and I was coming off pneumonia. Uh, as it can kind of, your body also just doesn't know how to metabolize, you're not burning that same rate. So trying to keep it a much healthier intake of high proteins and definitely trying to keep um, training right now coming out of the gate. So uh, the body can kind of reawaken a little bit, but also have like proper fuel to do that. Well, I want to uh, go back a couple points. I've never done a pull-up in my life, so there's nothing <laughs> to feel too bad about there. It was the, yeah. uh, it's the big issue in the old presidential physical fitness <laughs> you, test. You've, that, never, that done, you've never done never a pull-up. Never gotten a pull-up. Too, my yeah. my center of gravity is too low, I think. <laughs> That's that, yeah, that, yeah. That must be yeah. That. Um, so so uh, w- one question, follow-up there. What was your first post-mountain meal that you really were able to enjoy and indulge? And then the second question is, I know when we talked to you last, we talked a little bit about the prep, but are you essentially trying to bulk up? I mean, like a bear going into hibernation, like pack as many calories and carbs in as you can, knowing your body's just going to start eating itself. I know I'm making this sound super pleasant for anyone thinking about trying to climb Mount Everest, but you know, how, how is that knowing that knowing what's coming, are you trying to load up or, or do you have to be careful about what you're eating and when you're eating because of the physical toll that you're, you're going to be under. Yeah. So, I mean, going, going the second first, uh, there, there's this balance. I mean, people have different takes on what they want, but in, in general, I think you're trying to create a, a most highly efficient metabolic system within your body as possible. So knowing that your body will at some point in time, not be getting enough simple carbohydrates to fuel your system, you know, that next up um, to, uh, to kind of be consumed is going to be your muscles. Uh, fat just takes more energy to break down. So the, the goal is you want a, a, a level of muscle and strength that will feed that moment. Um, but the ideal goal too, is you're trying to mitigate that through your training in advance of getting to the mountain. So yeah, you do a lot of kind of metabolic testing to determine like kind of at what rate your body transitions from burning uh, carbs to, to start working on fat. And you're, then you're trying to increase your body's efficiency. So a lot of like one, one tactic is doing a lot of fasted training in advance. So you're basically just burning off those carbs and then going ideally straight to kind of working on burning fat. So you can save some of that muscle because that muscle is super important to get you up the mountain still and get you down. If you eat it all uh, on your first or second rotation, um, you're coming too skinny, uh, which some people come in like super light, um, which doesn't work. I think there's this 
Goldilocks zone where you don't want to be too heavy because ounces equals pounds, the higher up you get. Um, and you don't want to carry a bunch of weight, like really big, strong guys also have usually a hard time on the mountain because they have to haul all that, um, what mass up the mountain. They also have to feed all that muscle every time they do anything. So there's this in-between zone where you're not looking, uh, like the cover of men's health magazine, but you're also, <laughs> you're not trying to like also be like, um, kind of, uh, too heavy to get up. Um, cause it's just super hard to pull yourself up, um, over and over again, doing that. And, uh, my, my girlfriend actually, um, I got engaged this weekend. Um, so like, it's actually what John said. Thank you. Yeah. I actually proposed to her on the summit of Everest. She didn't know it. I carried a flag up there and then finally showed her the flag on Saturday. So, um, I was kept calling my girlfriend. I got to change that to fiance, but, um, but, uh, she, uh, knew my, my craving is always fresh berries. Cause on the mountain, you just don't get anything really that's truly fresh. So berries, also taco time, um, uh, kind of a Dick's milkshake, which is like a local burger joint up here. Uh, it's kind of a smorgasbord of sushi. Like it's kind of, it wasn't one meal. It was like five meals yeah. in one, the minute I got off the mountain. It didn't really stop for about four or five days like that, but, um, back to a much more civilized, um, normal kind of training uh, diet now. Yeah, so that's like a Saturday night for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 I, I'm, it's one of the happiest things about coming back because I just can have it all right then. So yeah. yeah. A lot of people focus on the climb up the mountain, and I think what many folks don't know is the deadliest part of, of climbing Mount Everest is actually the descent, right? Coming down off the mountain mm -hmm. where most people die. Can you talk about the descent coming off Mount Everest? Because everyone likes to talk about how you climbed, and obviously it's an incredible story, but I am very, very curious about the descent and what that was like and how you went through that absolutely. process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I think I think the numbers are around like 85% of injuries and deaths occur on the descent. Um, and this is because I think most people either get summit fever or view the summit as the, the culmination of the climb when in fact it's simply the last place you can turn around. Um, and so I think I was told that early on and it kind of stuck with me because it's just realized that you're looking for this like this, this summit moment, but like the, the moment where like you've truly completed the climb is when you get back home and you're safe and sound. So um, I think for, for us in general, you, you get up there and, and you see it a lot, even just on the summit day, the people that have burnt so much energy to get to the summit and then look like a newborn calf walking down, just kind of like doe-legged and, and falling over. And I mean, that's, that's where the real danger comes. Um, and you, you see that in just kind of people's injuries and see people like just running out of oxygen because they, they just mismanaged their systems or they didn't feed themselves enough. Um, and then, yeah, when you, when you get done with the summit, you still have two and a half days. You still have to go down from over 8,000 meters all the way down through the Kumbu Ice Falls. And so um, the climb is not over till you finish the mountain. Um, and I, I think that's where the, the humility comes into realizing sometimes if, if it's not your day. And I always like applaud the people that kind of like, look at themselves and, and, and realize like internally that this might not be the day, whether they're not feeling it, they're not up to it. I mean, the best athletes um, in the mountains, I think, have the humility to walk away from the summit, knowing that's not their day, that's not their year. Um, and honestly, that's why you, um, I think, put together good teams and get people that are good guides for you that have been up there and can read the systems around you, the weather conditions, because um, too much ego is what eventually gets you in trouble. Um, even if you've had success with those systems in the past, when if they're a bad system, when they fail, they usually fail critically and, and cause kind of irreparable harm to the people that are kind of practicing them. So outside of 
I'm, I'm sure what was expected challenges or, or small hurdles, did everything go as planned for you? Were there any moments where you're like, holy, shit, like we weren't, we don't know what to do or, or what? I don't want to say smooth, right? Because I'm assuming yeah. no, no climb of Everest is ever quote unquote smooth, but did it totally. go as planned or were there, were there some? Uh, yeah, I mean, no. So <laughs> it, it was, uh, we, 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 had, we had planned um, for about, I think, six days for summer rotation from base camp to the summer. Um, and we thought we had a weather window dialed in. Um, and we we're fortunate enough to have um, kind of contracted out some really uh, good weather services based out of Belgium um, that we kind of use throughout the season who kind of work to help us figure out um, versus just opening our tent and looking out the door, what, what is the proper uh, day to go to the summit? Because once you actually hit camp four, you you almost just have about 48 hours when, based upon how much oxygen you have there to, to get up and get down and get off um, and start descending. So if you don't time it right and hit camp four, right when the weather is opening up, then uh, you essentially kind of like shoot yourself in the foot when it comes to summiting. So we actually were doing well to camp two. Um, and then we just got kind of hammered by wind and snow. Um, I have actually been in a tent with those kind of winds uh, sustained ever on, on any mountain, on any expedition before. So we moved to camp three, which is right on the Lotsu face and kind of a place you don't want to stay more longer than you have to. And we ended up having, to, we came in and had to unbury our tents that were completely socked in from 24 hours before from this massive storm that came in there. Um, my tent with my tent at that time was literally at a 45 degree angle with a huge crevasse below us and barely hanging on. And I slept in this trench because my tent went over the side of our tent mound and we just didn't have the time and energy to do that. So we ended up spending two days there to time ourselves better to moving to camp four. Um, and the move from three to four turned out pretty well, but then coming in at four was just, uh, it was just savage, but the winds were just ripping and tearing. Um, camp four is a pretty kind of a graveyard of expeditions past there's just a lot of garbage tents um unfortunately some some bodies are there still and you just kind of like come in there and you realize this is the real deal um and, and because of the the system we weren't able to actually get water or food that day or night coming in so we came in dehydrated weren't able to rehydrate um we actually ended up uh bringing in a strip into our tent who had been lost that night to, uh and basically kind of bring carry this whole system where we were up to about three in the morning stabilizing him um came in was throwing up in our tents so we had to kind of like stabilize him with oxygen so it's just one of those things where it's, it's such a place where you're on that on that edge of life and death um and everyone's just kind of taking care of each other and trying to take care of themselves uh, as best as possible but uh we were uh we were definitely feeling it um and feeling kind of a lot of the the angst going into our summit day into the night the winds were still kicking up pretty hard but the minute we hit that balcony which is about 50 percent you come out right out of camp four uh the sun started coming up and all of a sudden you could just feel things calming down and uh it's just like this beautiful spiritual moment when all of a sudden you kind of like come out of the darkness of your headlamp and all of a sudden are bathed in the light of like a new day and like things calm down and you could see the mountain ahead of you and all of a sudden you were on Everest um, and you were halfway there. And it just at that point in time, things kind of like settled in. And our summer day was pretty beautiful after that. I mean, you can't really ask for a better one or, or, or take your gloves off at the summit. Um, it was, we were up there for about half an hour, only left because uh, I just wanted to get back down. I felt like I'd been up there long enough and didn't want to take more than it was willing to give. Um, 
but yeah, and then, and then the descent was a bit bit rougher. That we there was a cyclone that ended up hitting the mountain, so we had this beautiful window. We endured a lot, got the summit, but uh, going down just became uh, another whole thing. And then uh, we were just basically hit by double cyclones that merged onto uh, the mountain and camp. So snow, wind, no ability to really get out of camp base camp when we got down. So, but summit was beautiful. So, um, but it was about twelve days longer uh, or twelve days total, which is substantially longer than we had budgeted. I think for everything. The first time we had you on, you talked about the the mini climbs that you had done before and a little bit of, of the things that you had learned as you went through that process. What did you learn about yourself on this climb? Yeah, for me, it was, I, I had the goal going in to do the double, the double 8,000 meter peaks. And um, it just kind of reaffirmed that, that lesson of like listening to your body and not taking more than the mountain's willing to give and more than your body's willing to give. Um, there was like this sense of ego and sense of that I had like kind of like planted my flag and I wanted to achieve this specific goal but you kind of get to this place where you start reassessing what is truly important and like why you're truly there um and just like being grateful for those like for the opportunities to climb what you want to climb and I think that's why I had such a strong ever summit days because before I even went up I had like decided that I wouldn't do the second one, just knowing the weather was going to shut down. And that gave me the ability to kind of channel all that energy that I might've like set aside for that mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and channel it into like the true goal that I was there for from the very start. And the one that truly mattered to me most. And I think that's the thing. Like sometimes we, we set goals for ourselves, and we become so committed and grasp them so tightly that we actually lose both goals. We, we aren't able to achieve both things um, versus kind of realizing what the, the true core of what we're trying to achieve is and then committing ourselves and being willing to release and relinquish the things that don't truly matter. Um, and yeah, for me, I think that like it got me up and down more safely because of that. It's funny you mentioned that. I was reading something recently in a book and it was talking about gritty people and how sometimes they can be their own worst enemy because they always grit their teeth and I'm going to, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to push through this. Right. And I'm going to find a way. It sounds, it sounds similar to what you're talking about. It highlighted how important it is at times to grit your teeth and turn around. And for your, yeah. case, it sounds like gritting your teeth yeah. and saying, I'm going to climb this mountain. I'm going to give it everything I have. And then I'm going to go back and recalibrate. Yeah. I couldn't agree. I think there, there's definitely a balance between fight and flow. Like there's this thing when you kind of like, you, you, you definitely want to fight for it and fight through it to get to where you want to go. But then you also need to flow with the things that are external to yourself and the conditions that are existing. And, and you have to go with that as well. Like um, there's a balance between like what you can do and, and what is presented to you that allows you to do those things. So, and the mountain's always a good teacher of that and it will scold you substantially if you decide to try to like go against that you you shared a little bit about you know coming through and, and seeing the summit and, and knowing that at that point you you were pretty confident you were going to make it what is that moment like i mean can you i'm sure of course it's one of those things that you can't really explain or describe without being there but when you get to the summit like what what do you see? What's around? Is it, is it truly like just being on top of the world? I mean, what, if, if you could try and paint a little bit of yeah. a picture about what it's like to, to just sit up there and take a look around. I, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So it's, you, you come over the Hillary step, which is like this traditional thing. And actually I didn't know how far away the summit was, but it's another 10 to 15 minutes. And so, but all of a sudden you're kind of on this summit ridge line and you're kind of slowly uh, moving upwards and it's there's exposure there but it's not too bad all of a sudden you kind of feel like you can really start to let yourself be there um, and like that that last 24 hours on the mountain we were going towards the summit 
you start elevating yourself at such a substantial rate that all these things that had been hovering above you, all these mountains that are 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 meters are all of a sudden beginning to like be below you. And you can see the valley um, below that leads down through camp two, down through the Kumbawais Falls. You can see where camp one is and you just look out to the horizon and you can begin to see the curvature of the earth, which is absolutely unreal. Just this slight dip on both ends of your periphery. And I mean, we were very fortunate because of what was there, but there's just this little patch near the summit of prayer flags and, and idols that people have carried up there. And we waited actually at the bottom of the hill stuff for about an hour, which is just showing how nice the weather was for us to let kind of the crowds disappear before we went up. So there's only about maybe 10, 10 of us there at the moment. So it wasn't crowded. Um, and it just, I mean, for me, I, I, I'm a crier usually on summits and it was no different this time. Um, there, there's a, there's a lot of emotion, I think, especially for, for me, um, having tried Everest before having prepared for it last year with COVID and not having, and then finally having come to realize having seven summits come to fruition in that moment, it, it was just, it's extremely um, emotional. You also realize how much people in your life have given to you to be there. Um, I think this is no different than in the fraternity or, or any kind of organization that you're part of or family or community. You, you realize that like your strength is also based upon the strength of that community. Um, and so you just, I mean, it gives me chills thinking about it now because I just remember the feeling of how much gratitude I had for everyone who had been in my life, who had helped me, who had taught me, who had loved me um, and who really had taken all those steps with me to that point. So uh it's an emotional place and you, and you see people realizing dreams um, that they'd held their whole lifetime. We had this great inspirational man named Art Muir, who's from Chicago, who's 75 years old, um, who had tried in 2018, I think, um, and who hadn't made it, came back this year, became the oldest American ever to summit Everest. Just like people like that, that you're sharing the summit with on your team. And you just, you see the dreams reflected back in your own eyes and you see your own dream in them as well this kind of shared tethered universal dream that's shared by all the people to kind of seek any kind of summit and uh it's a special place um but like anything it's you're there for a very short time and you just try to like take a seed and plant in your heart and let that thing take root for the rest of your life we live in a society of immediate gratification where people can't wait three minutes for their starbucks so i cannot imagine what was it like having to wait for an hour there when you're 10 to 15 minutes away, because I yeah. anticipation that, right. You've gone through all these weather events and yeah. all the sacrifices and everything. And then to sit there for an hour, I just, I would love for you to paint that because that I cannot imagine how much patience that would. Yeah. Be. It's, it's a weird balance. I mean, I, I think if it had been any other day, I would have been extremely nervous about spending any more time, but we had been so efficient in ourselves to getting to that point, but it, I actually, I've talked to this about a few people, the, the fact that like when you get higher and you have to slow down and there are some lines for, for me, I loved it because it, it actually slowed me down to the point where I could look around and appreciate where I was, um, knowing full well that I'll probably never stand in those steps again. Um, so like, despite even being there, like I was just so grateful and appreciative to be able to like, just have those moments um, uh, and just try to soak it in as much as possible. Like, put my hand on the rock next to me and just kind of like to try to feel that rock and know that like I'm, I'm touching like the top of the world right now, like in the sense of those ridge lines and like just tried to soak up as much as possible because you just never know when you're going to get back there. And, and like, and having taken so long to get there to begin with, um, 
it was almost like I didn't want to rush it. Like I, like I was okay slowing down. Like I wasn't trying to get anywhere else too quickly. Like I just wanted to, to cherish it, cherish it all because, um, uh, I'll, I'll climb other mountains, but I'll never be on that one in that moment in that day. Like I was, are you, are you burning energy and conversation at that point an hour sitting there for an hour or is everyone just essentially looking yeah. around and, and taking it in? So like the, there's only about maybe five or six of us to decide that we were going to wait um, on this little ledge area that just had about just enough room for someone to pass us. Cause the, the, the rope's only one rope there. So you got to clip people around you, but it was, it was, it was the right decision because partially when, what happens around the Hillary step, when people start getting, um, getting kind of that cluster is that you, people start trying to be uh, impatient and they unclip the rope and start trying to go up around people and stuff like that. That's when you're starting to like deal with a lot of risk um, and, and falling off and, and people can get hurt. So for us, we're like, we, we weighed ourselves and kept checking in with one another, like how we're we doing. Like we were all warm. We all had oxygen. Um, we kind of just, uh, clipped ourselves into some older ropes that were there um, just kind of like allowed the the rope that people were using to kind of go to be more free and then as people came by especially the people that were maybe had burned a little too much going up to the summit we helped them by uh, along helped keep them clip in um, but we just kind of kept in communication with one another um, our little group there that we decided to stop and just make sure that everyone was doing okay if, if we had started getting too cold or something happened we would have started to move up the mountain we would have push that last little bit. But, um, I think we just realized that we were in a good position. We were secure. Um, and so we, we could, we could bide our time there and wait for it to be completely. Cause once it's safe and clear, it's a pretty direct and simple route up. Just, uh, you kind of minimize your risk by, by being patient. Well, one of the things you mentioned were, were the crowds. And, and one of the things that's interesting to me, you're right. Reading articles or, or seeing pictures is that Everest has almost, it, Hate to call this, but it's almost become a tourist destination to, to some yeah. people where, um, you know, if you have enough money and you have the means, you you can at least try and get up there. For someone like yeah. yourself who takes it so seriously, who preps as hard as you do, how do you, I, I'd imagine it's not worth wasting the emotional energy to say, you know, screw that guy. He didn't put in the time that I did. But how do you separate yourself mentally from, from that and just kind of let that go when you know there are people up there who have not worked as hard, fought as hard, gone through the things that you've gone through and are just kind of there because I think it might be something cool to do once or twice. Yeah, it definitely dilutes down, I think, how special Everest is. Not only those that go back every year and guide on it, but to the Nepalese people and the Tibetan people that that have a reverence for this mountain. Um, um, beyond it just being the tallest mountain, it is something that is spiritually important to them. And I think... Um, that's often lost when people have that relationship that we talked about last time of conquering versus communion with this mountain and connection with the community of people they're with. And, and I think there there's, I feel, um, I just feel bad for them because I think they're missing a really uh, deeper level of, of meaning that can be extracted from climbing big mountains or climbing any mountain. Um, but everyone climbs for different reasons and they're drawn to it. So at the end of the day, I try to have empathy for, for why they're doing it. Um, and I do know that people climb for sometimes it's the ego that drives um, for some people, but uh, you do, I think like find things that connect you all in some way. There's something that mountain climbing for some reason draws them there. And so uh, I hope there's some seed uh, of universal um, respect for the mountain that they have that's either wasn't there when they got there or it's definitely gained from the climb itself um, and and the mountain generally 
it's a good filter of those that come come in with um, too much ego and not enough respect for the mountain. Um, there are tons of people that get up there that are pulled up or pulled off um, that you're like, it's, it's a shame because they're going to go back there and they're going to probably haul it, like Hollywoodize their, their story and, and create a, a different narrative. But again, they have to live with that truth um, and live with the truth that they know themselves to, to be their own experience. And um, again, like you said, it's end of the day, uh, it's not worth kind of going and trying to correct people or, or kind of, filter them out of that experience um it's it should be your own personal thing at the end of the day and you have to live with your stories how much time did you spend andrew when you got all the way down and off the mountain did you spend time in the country what, what was that process between getting to the base of the mountain and then getting on an airplane yeah i mean we uh so i actually sprained my ankle on the descent from the summit so uh i was kind of beginning to hobble down <laughs> from about camp four all the way to base camp. Um, so by the time I got through the Kumbu Ice Falls, um, I was kind of couldn't put weight on my left foot um, or my left ankle at all. So I, I actually was gonna get, try, I was trying to get medically evacuated out, but we actually, um, the, uh, it was the Cyclone Yas uh, hit the mountain right on the 25th as we came. And so the ability to both to trek out and to fly out were kind of negated for all people at that time. Uh, partially because since there's not all the trekkers this year, a lot of the the lodges that we would normally stay at on the trek out have closed down early for the season. So the ability to actually trek out and stay at places that you normally would to kind of break up the 26 miles down to Namche um, before you would head down to Lukla wasn't just an option for the first few days. And um, I couldn't really walk out anyways. So I was just waiting for a helicopter weather window and got fortunate to get out, but the COVID cases in uh, Nepal just in the last few weeks when we were there on the mountain just went horribly through the roof. Um, so the country itself actually shut down almost all of May and into June, um, all inbound and outbound flights. So whether you're even trying to get home, you couldn't fly out on your flight. So all our flights were canceled anyways. Um, so even though it, we eventually took about uh, two helicopter days to get out down to Kathmandu, but once we were there, the whole city was shut down with military and checkpoints and you couldn't be out of your hotel. So we were stuck in our hotel with no flights. Um, all our flights that were supposed to go did get canceled. And then um, kind of a strange charter system was set up by the Nepalese government where we, have got, where we got to pay extra um, to, to fly out um, to cities that generally weren't even the cities we were trying to fly to, but would actually get us out of the country at least. Um, a bit of an Argo situation. And then, um, then once back, I mean, like we, I was only a few days late, but the logistics to actually get out were not this kind of smooth transition. It was like hurdle after hurdle, whether it was weather-wise or COVID or political. So, yeah, not, not a quick ride home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I just, my, my last question for you, and I don't know, I'm guessing uh, based on conversations that we've had previously it is on your mind i don't know about how deeply but what's next for you right you you hit this goal you 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 accomplish what you set out to accomplish with everest um i'm guessing you're not ready to sit back and and hang up the uh the climbing boots so to speak but uh what what's next on the docket for you yeah so the the thing that's most confirmed and it was kind of a redundancy in case this year is i'm heading to uh hopefully the north pole uh and uh April of 2022, so uh, next year, um, and that's kind of uh, traversing by ski and sled, uh, 
89th degree to the to the North Pole itself. Um, and I'm able to do that. That'll complete the Explorers Grand Slam for me, which will be, I think there's less than 60 people have ever done that. Um, so that, that's always been another goal after the Seven Summits was Explorers Grand Slam. Uh, I'm working right now to hopefully maybe um, be back in the Alps this summer for some, some training climbing, maybe do Mont Blanc again. Um, and then I'm working on uh, coordinating some climbs down in uh, the Atacama Plateau in Chile. And hopefully going after a couple of world records for a hybrid of uh, kayaking, stand-up paddleboarding, and mountaineering um, with these high bodies of water they have, uh, kind of the highest bodies of water in the world. So hopefully there'll be a, a couple of fun expeditions for, for 2022. And then, of course, uh, I have to get married at some point Thank next year. Well. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget about that. So just, just prioritize just, that just as well. World records, the North Pole, and a wedding. I mean, there's really yes. much on your dock. Could you, could you combine yeah. some of those plans and just get married up in the North Pole? Is that a, yeah. a possibility? We were, yeah. If my fiance liked the cold, I would say so, but I think she, she, I'd have to do, I'd have to figure out some kind of beachy situation in the North Pole, which I'm not sure will work out so well. But we get, we get a lot of reasons why people can't volunteer for the fraternity, but this does seem like a series of very valid reasons why you time. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to being more around to be, uh, be able to get back and, and, and volunteer on a more regular basis as well, for sure. But uh, yeah, the last, the last handful of years have been kind of uh, been hard to, do much of anything else besides repack bags and do laundry. So we'll give you a pass. We'll Thank you. No Appreciate it. Always here for you guys though. See, no if, uh, see if you can find some Wi-Fi up there in the North pole. We'll, uh, we'll just, we'll try and do the first ever, you know, Teak nation podcast interview up on the, uh, the top of yeah, the, on the ice. Absolutely. Yeah. We can totally do that. Small garden yeah. beyond. So, yeah. Don, did you have anything else? I don't. I'm incredibly grateful, Andrew, for you making time again. I know our listeners are really going to appreciate this. And uh, hearing your stories and the, the grace in which you share it and the humility and the lessons, it's, it's inspiring for us. I know it's inspiring for our, our listeners. And as Al said, I'm really excited about your next adventures and hearing about that because it's some of us are living, I know I speak for myself, living vicariously through you. You know, there's many of us that think, Right. We, we have it tough when we're doing some personal training or some other goals we're tackling, but uh, it's inspiring to see all the things you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm so grateful for all you guys do and for the fraternity and for the brotherhoods you continue to help foster. So thank you for everything and for this opportunity to be here. So it's always an honor. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we can't, uh, can't thank you enough. We'll do it again right. soon. Absolutely. Look forward to it. We want to thank Andrew one last time for being with us, for making time for us. I'm sure there are a lot of people tugging on him, asking him what it was like to climb the world's tallest mountain. So uh, taking 35 minutes of his time was a privilege. Obviously, congratulations to him as well on the engagement and an overall tough interview for the, uh, the Flat Earth Society. So uh, tough scene there. Maybe you can reach out to Andrew for more info if you're curious on the curvature of the earth. With that... We're going to wrap this sucker up. That is all for the Teak Nation podcast this week. We will be back with you next week, of course. Until then, tell a friend about this program. Make sure that you know when the next episode of the Teak Nation podcast drops. Like, subscribe, download, record, listen, listen again, work it into your daily schedule, your weekly schedule. We want to hear more from you. We want to talk to more of you. And uh, frankly, we uh, we need you. We need you to keep listening and, and need you to uh, to get more people on board. So with all that being said, it has been an honor to talk to you here today. And we'll catch you again soon. Goodbye.